Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. There's a good chance you haven't heard of the Royal Society of Arts. Well, to be specific, the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers, and Commerce. And that's unfortunate because it was an important institution, the result of 18th century coffee house culture, combining with the Enlightenment's belief in bettering humanity through scientific progress, that helped transform Great Britain from a backwater in 1500 to the technological leader of the world by 1850. In a time of slowed innovation and technological pessimism, we could all stand to learn from this institution's example, and so I'm delighted to discuss it today with Anton Howes. Anton is a historian in residence at the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers, and Commerce. He is the author of the recently released authorized history, Arts and Minds, How the Royal Society of Arts Changed the Nation. Anton, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. This is something that you wrote in a paper leading up to the uh, book. And I know how much the listeners love when I read. So I love to read a little bit every podcast. So let me read what you wrote. Uh, and then I'll ask you to comment. In yeah. 1547, the year that Henry VIII died, the British Isles were peripheral to European technology development. Glass makers, for example, were said to be almost entirely lacking. And it would be some decades, despite the encouragement of the state, before glass makers could be enticed to bring their expertise. Even England's textiles, its main export, were hampered by dyes of poor quality. The preoccupation was not with developing technologies that were new, but with simply keeping pace. And yet, three centuries later, in 1851, the United Kingdom had become the world's technological leader. So, easy question, how did that happen? I mean, that is the question, really. Um, it's the first sustained economic growth um, that the world had seen, and really in a kind of mind-boggling way. Um, if you'd looked at 1347 versus 1547, the world would not have seemed all that different. Um, but 1851 from compared to 1547 was quite radically different. The main reason I think that it happens is because Brits in particular become especially good at developing the kinds of institutions um, that spread innovation further. And I don't mean this in a kind of top-down way, in the sense that through good policy making, um, you just had laws that were created that, that, pro that uh, promoted things. Um, I don't think there's actually all that much of that. Rather, it's that innovators, both domestic and foreign, you know, often immigrants coming to Britain or coming to England um, in that period, were lobbying for the kinds of changes, not only in support of their own innovations, and innovators had always been around for a long time, um, but what they managed to do in Britain, I think quite uniquely, is consistently get the kinds of victories in creating the sorts of institutions or getting the sorts of laws or getting through the sorts of policies or measures um, that would support innovation in general. Um, so what you seem to see is not just this spread of what I call an improving mentality from person to person, from inventor to inventor, where they're inspiring one another um, to adopt this way of doing things. Um, but also at the same time, a sort of public spiritedness um, in that they are 
not just inventing for their own private gain, not just keeping secrets and so on, but also actively trying to spread innovation further. So spread that mentality to other people as much as possible. Now that, uh, uh, that mentality and that belief, I think there's sometimes when people talk about the industrial revolution, they'll want to focus on things like, oh, there's a lot of coal in Great Britain or something, mm -hmm. or, there, or this particular invention uh, really kicked things off. They, they, they tend not to focus on beliefs. Now, that's not true of this podcast. We've had a lot of people on here, Joe Moker, uh, Deirdre McCloskey, who focus on ideas um, and beliefs. So when did, when did this sort of transformation begin? Do we have to, do, do we have to go back to Francis Bacon? I think potentially even earlier. Um, so what happens is, well, hit, yeah, you're, you're right to mention that there's all sorts of different industries that we could focus on. Coal in particular is a very popular one. Cotton, steam power, which I guess is also really about application of coal. Um, iron metallurgy as well really is, is kind of coal is at the root of that potentially as well. Um, but really the Industrial Revolution sees consistent improvement across the board from agriculture, to watchmaking, including everything in between, interior design, architecture, gardening. If you can think of a field, there was, there was continuous improvement over this period. And the other interesting thing though is about timing, which is that very often when we think of the Industrial Revolution, the kind of classic Industrial Revolution period that people tend to, that springs to mind for them is generally about 1760 to 1830. And maybe they'll say, oh, there's a few key inventions that happen a bit before that. Really, I think, though, if you if you look at Britain's international reputation, what foreigners are saying about Britain by 1700 already, they're saying, look, if something is invented, um, let's say in France, um, it's in Britain that it's going to be perfected. It's in Britain that you're going to get this continuous improvement until it becomes a workable product, something that's probably going to sell as well. Um, so already by 1700, long before the kind of classic industrial revolution period. Britain seems to have this reputation for inventiveness, for improvement in particular. And so I think the period we really need to look at is that earlier bit, you know, even before 1700, before 1660, let's say, and the creation of the Royal Society, this initial group of uh, many of the scientists in Britain, we need to say, well, how is it that a Royal Society could emerge in the first place? And so early on, so precociously, given Britain was such a backwater just a hundred years earlier. I think the crucial century that we really need to focus on is really 1550 to 1650. Clearly, that's when something happens that's quite special. So maybe you can sort of um, connect the dots, and maybe I'm giving you the wrong dots to connect. And if that's the case, give me different dots. Mm -hmm. But as I as I was uh, as I, I wrote them down uh, before me, I have Francis Bacon, then the, then the, then the Royal Society of London for improving natural knowledge, and then the subject of your book, yeah. the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce. How did one lead to the other? So I think the way to put it this way is that Britain or England's at least primary activity in the first 50 years, so 1550s to 1600, is very much about technological catch up and developing the sorts of institutions um, that can allow Britain to be on par with other powers. Um, and I think Bacon comes along in this period and really what he does isn't necessarily all that new, but he systematizes a way of thinking about the world and I think creates a sort of movement around it. He's a sort of lightning rod for the sorts of people who are saying, let's look at all of the existing knowledge that we currently have and let's question everything. 
So Bacon's vision, in a sense, is, is that we need to systematically go through, you know, he kind of has this project of we should have a bunch of people who are going to go and read all the books, a bunch of people who are going to go and interview all of the trades people who are going to do all of the kind of investigative work and all of the observing of nature and we'll systematically put together, we'll rebuild what we currently know from the ground up and we'll test all of the old knowledge as well. And the Royal Society is really set up about 50, 60 years later by a bunch of people who essentially have been inspired by that Baconian call, that Baconian programme. Now, where the Society of Arts fits in, and it only gets that royal much later on in 1908, but where the Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce fits in, is that what happened with the Royal Society is that a lot of the fellows of it very quickly realised that rather than concentrating on improving things in terms of coming up with new manufacturers, new improvements to, or well, inventions really, and they focused primarily on what you might call natural philosophy at the time, what we today would call science, that is discovery of new laws. To give you an example of this, Robert Hooke or Robert Boyle, they have gained eternal fame for discovering scientific laws. Whereas if you take a typical inventor, the moment their, inventor, their invention is superseded, is slightly improved upon, they're almost immediately forgotten unless they were particularly influential, say James Watt or whatever. So I think in terms of the kind of social standing and glory that comes with science, it was so much more attractive than that that came with invention, that they very much focused on the scientific and the more abstract theoretical or kind of observational stuff. And so by the 1750s, there's this perceived need, even earlier really, perceived need that there should be a specific institution that takes that extra step, which is to take our expanding knowledge and do the application. Um, and that's where the Society of Arts fits in, in, in with that. Essentially, it's about application of knowledge um, and set up by, you know, the main founder isn't a Royal Society member, but he is someone who's in those circles. And many of the other initial members, especially the influential ones, people like Stephen Hales, who was a scientist and an inventor, um, they're also fellows of the Royal Society who see the need for a new institution to take it a bit further. So what did the... Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce. What, what did it, so what, so what did it see as its mission at the beginning? How did it go about that? And maybe give a feel for how that sort, how it pursued that mission, how that changed over the decades. Right. So the way it was set up in 1754, I mean, originally it's just 11 blokes meet in a coffee house and decided to declare themselves the Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, right? Um, but the way it's set up originally is that there would be a prize fund um, and that each member who paid in their subscri annual subscription fee or a life subscription fee, that's two guineas or 20 guineas for life, um, it would be one person, one vote. Interestingly, and very unusually, including women from the very beginning as well. So one person, one vote, and then they would have a debate originally around the coffee house table, later on in a great room as the society's premises expanded and expanded to accommodate more and more people. But they would have a debate about what kind of prizes they would have on offer. And essentially it was done for a pure direct democracy. Um, so the societies, um, the way it does things, the things that it was doing, um, kind of reflects what England's and London's elites especially thought were things that needed doing. They, the kinds of things that they thought were technological or, or problems that could have technological solutions very often. Or it could be things like, here's a prize for opening a new trade or cultivating something else in the colonies that can then be imported to Britain, um, as well as 
how we kind of the standard way that we think of inventions uh, or improvements. Um, so essentially anything that could be for the public good was up for grabs. There wasn't any kind of delimiting of what the society could and couldn't do as so long as that you could get other members to agree upon it. So you get, for example, in the 1750s and 60s, artists saying, well, you've called yourself Society of Arts. That includes painting and sculpture and so on. Let's have more of that as a kind of um, attempted takeover of the institution um, by artists. Doesn't quite work. You also have you know, in um, people who are trying to, uh, they're concerned about Britain's Navy and they're concerned that due to deforestation, you're not going to have the timber for Britain to have its own you know, supply of raw materials for building ships. There are wooden walls against um, other, other powers of Europe. Um, and so they have a prize, for example, for, for planting trees. For the most part, however, what they tried to do was fill in the gaps of what wasn't already being invented. The patent system already sort of existed. Patents were becoming more and more commonly granted in the 1750s and 60s. Um, and so they very quickly decided that they wouldn't um, accept patented inventions, that if something was going to be patented, that probably suggested that it was already worthwhile. Patents in those days were extremely expensive. So it suggested that there was already an incentive to invent that thing. And so the moment something was patented, they would say, OK, well, let's 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 try to have a prize, advertise a prize for something that's different. And even when they had unsolicited inventions being submitted to them, um, they wanted them not to be ones that were patented because they wanted to be able to allow anyone to be able to use those things. Printing the details of them, have models of them that you could go and visit and have a go on, um, take drawings from and so on. It's very much about the diffusion and the spread of knowledge. But they saw themselves as kind of filling in the gaps. What were the sort of things that wouldn't otherwise be patented? Um, what's less profitable but still useful. So, you know, safety improvements for workers, consumer safety improvements, things that maybe couldn't be covered by the patent system but are still innovations like signaling systems for the Navy, you know, early semaphore, for example, they give a whole bunch of prizes for that sort of thing. So the kind, these are sort of things on the periphery that were still very much worth promoting. And I think the lesson today is that, you know, if we have prize systems, we shouldn't try to replace um, what already exists, we should try to supplement what already exists because it, for the most part, it works pretty well. Did the society see itself as having a role in also you know, persuading um, the larger, lar you know, the larger society that innovation is a good thing, that even though it might be disruptive, innovation and trade will eventually, you know, uh, you know, be what's best, you know, for economic growth and eventually living standards will rise. How much was sort of that persuasion aspect part of society's mission? Well, I think it's kind of almost fundamental to why the society set up in the first place, because part of the problem with the Royal Society, that is the, the, the one set up in 1660, the scientific society, and not to be confused, although they both, had, the, when they added Royal in 1908 to the Society of Arts name, made things all the more confusing. Um, the difference there was that the Royal Society was sometimes ridiculed. You have all these scientists, they're going and coming up with all their theories, but what's the use of it? So the Society of Arts being set up in the 1750s is very much about kind of justifying what's going on. It's saying that, look, all of this expansion of knowledge can have a practical public serving use. Tell me about the climbing boys and what the uh, society had to do with the climbing boys. Right. So this is a particularly good example, I think, of the kind of public interested um, innovation. Um, 
so the the problem with the climbing boys was that essentially in by the well by the late 18th century if you wanted to clean your chimneys in a big city like london um you were probably employing children sometimes as young as four to go up there and you know physically climb up into the chimney and try to try to clean them um, and the problem for the kids is pretty obvious right which is that you know it's extremely unsafe it's extremely hazardous there are cases of people accidentally lighting the fires underneath them and suffocating and killing them there are cases of kids having to go up to put out a fire that's in the flue literally armed with a damp rag um, very often their life expectancy was extremely low because they would get all sorts of cancers just from the soot um, and it's it starts to be seen by about the 1760s through in some parts of um, the city as being a bit of a problem something that really needs to be dealt with but you can't deal with a problem like that if you can't find some sort of replacement for them so a society is set up um, again in a coffee house um, with some of the members of the society of arts called the society for superseding the necessity of climbing boys which is the snappy version of the title the shorter version um, and they essentially campaign for there to be a technological replacement um, for using children to clean chimneys. Um, so the Society of Arts offers its own medal as part of this campaign, given it has these members in common. Um, and you get one invented by a guy called George Smart. And it's actually extremely simple. Um, it's actually one of those inventions. I, I like to think of it as one of these examples of something that could have been invented much, much earlier, um, given the principles uh, were so simple. Essentially, it's a bit like, you know how you put up a tent at a campsite and you'll have those rods with a, a cord down the middle of them and you can snap them together. Well, essentially imagine putting up a very, very long version of those rods, kind of clicking it all together and then pulling the cord down the middle to open a brush at the top and then just pulling the whole thing down with you. Um, it's extremely effective. It needed a few more improvements after that. Um, but effectively, it's a really great example of, and I think it's one of the ones that the society is even today quite proud of, of using innovation um, to serve this public interest, this, this something that wasn't necessarily going to cause a lot of people some profit and actually a lot of the master chimney sweeps tried to try to campaign against the use of the, the this, these new chimney brushes um it's a great example of um, that kind of public serving innovation very popular innovation so the role of the society sort of changed from sort of a kind of a prize awarding organization to really being a place where people who wanted there to be reform across society, it gave them kind of a forum to promote, you know, those reforms in a variety of sectors. And then that evolution, if I understand right, then you end up in 1851 with the Great Exhibition. Yeah. So, I mean, what happens is that in the 1830s and 40s, the society seems to be in decline. And so they start to reform themselves. And one of the things that they come up with as a, as a new way of doing things is Firstly, to instead of use prizes all the time, be more of a kind of platform for the diffusion of knowledge, um, particularly when it comes to um, combining existing specialisms. So you have the emergence of things like photography, which is a combination of art and chemistry. Right? You have um, increasingly a lot of work that's combining agriculture with chemistry and when it comes to fertilizers. Um, and you get all sorts of these combinations where, although the society had once separated all these things with its separate little committees to work out which prizes to offer, they start to see themselves as a platform for bridging those specialisms. Um, and you also have this idea picked up from the French, which is that essentially since about 1798, 
um, in France in order to promote catch up with Britain industrially, um, they decided to hold national exhibitions of industry. And the basic idea is that if you have this exhibition where you can put in one room um, all of the manufacturers from Marseille to Lyon to Paris to Normandy from wherever, and you can compare like with like, then the inventors in Marseille can look at the, the, the I don't know, the textile machinery in Paris and say, well, hmm, this is slightly better than what we've currently gotten. Here's how we could go and improve it. Essentially, a kind of putting every, by putting everything physically in the same space, um, you could allow manufacturers to learn from one another much more rapidly. And at the same time, you can also encourage um, consumers, which is that consumers might come and look at all of the textiles, for example, that are being produced all over the country and see the ones that are produced by their local producers and see the ones that are produced by different producers and say, well, why aren't we getting that here? Or should we be importing this from here? So the idea there being to not only to kind of provoke um, domestic producers to up their game and produce the best of the kind of national um, way of doing things, um, kind of spread of best practice, if you like, um, but also in, in many ways, just expose consumers to what they don't already know. You know, if you show them something, well, to expose consumers to what they didn't know they wanted, effectively, um, if you show them some amazing contrivance, some amazing design for the first time, then they can start to cultivate um, um, increased and very different demands as well. And so the society, well, members of the society by the 1840s are quite inspired by um, this model of doing things. And eventually this leads through the intervention of particular members um, to what becomes the Great Exhibition of 1851, which is a kind of pinnacle, um, if you like, of, of when Britain really does seem to be um, ahead of so many other countries industrially. Um, but the idea of the Great Exhibition of 1851 is actually again taking a French idea, which the French hadn't yet quite got round to implementing, which is instead of just having these national exhibitions, to have an international exhibition, one where you could have the industry of all nations, as it was called, hence the Great Exhibition. Um, and the idea there would be that in addition to having promoting industrial catch up for countries that were behind and showing them the best of what was available internationally, also in terms of trade, um, promoting free trade, which is that if, the, if a consumer in Britain sees what can be produced in France and wonders why um, British producers aren't creating that as well, then they can either demand that British producers up their game or they might start demanding lower tariffs. And exhibitions, after the Great Exhibition, you see so many more of these international exhibitions every few years. Um, and interestingly, it seems as though with every international exhibition, you get more and more international cooperation, you get lowering of tariffs. Um, they're often a chance for a lot of the politicians and artisans and manufacturers and merchants from all over the world to meet in the same place for the first time, or, 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 or and increasingly at regular intervals. Um, you get a lot of the international standardization movements coming out of it. Um, and you also see, for example, France abolishing passports for British um, artisans. You see France um, lowering its tariff barriers and so on and so forth. So they seem to become these engines of international cooperation um, as well as of free trade. So what does the society do today, briefly? Um, that's a great, I mean, it's, the society has done a lot of things since then as well. So you go from these um, innovation prizes in the first hundred years, you go, you, there's a move to exhibitions and also examinations, because when you can see who's ahead and who's behind internationally, you can also work out, or at least 
certain reformers can point to where Britain is behind and say, well, here's the sorts of um, reforms that we need to catch up with the rest of um, the world or to keep ahead of France and Germany, our rivals who are perhaps catching up with us. Um, so, for example, you get the promotion of educational reforms in Britain, usually by examinations, which the society helps spearhead. But after that, a lot of what the society did would end up kind of being a platform for, for lectures. I mean, you still have a lecture programme today. You still have its journal today. But the unique thing about the Society of Arts and the reason you know, I think it was well worth writing a book about and hopefully well worth reading a book about it is that there isn't really an organisation quite like it. It has to reinvent itself um, every few years based on whatever it's done. Um, so if it creates a new project, it usually kind of puts that project out into the world, lets it run itself as its own institution, then has to work out, okay, well, what's the next problem? And what's the next thing that we should do? And um, so lately, it's kind of sometimes has resembled a bit of a think tank coming up with all sorts of reports, trying to work out um, what kind of problems Britain and perhaps the rest of the world have, and then trying to come up with more innovative solutions um, to it. So a great example of this would be they had a report about um, there being a lack of community-based banking in the UK. Um, and so rather than just calling for banks to be, banks like those to be set up, they then actually helped set up a few banks, which is currently undergoing their regulatory approvals and so on in the country, um, which is a kind of interesting way of using their network fellows, um, you know, getting them to be amongst the shareholders, um, amongst the kind of initial board of directors, relying upon their expertise and so on. So it kind of follows this model that's very difficult to describe, frankly, um, especially when people ask what it does today. But I think kind of, if we think of the Society of Arts as being Britain's national voluntary semi-official improvement agency in the very broadest sense of the term improvement, that's what, that's I think the best description I've come up with. Um, you know, to wrap up, uh, frequent listeners to the podcast know we focus a lot on on innovation, how to make, uh, you know, why, why aren't we more productive? You know, why, you know, why did global productivity sort of downshift in the 1970s? What can we do to, to boost it going forward? So as, a, as someone who's a, a historian uh, of innovation, a historian of invention, what advice would you, would you give policymakers, you know, whether London or Washington, if you want to have a more innovative society and perhaps how we can take this time of crisis and get some good out of it and become a more innovative, forward-thinking uh, society going forward. Any advice? Well, I think there's a whole bunch of reforms that could be done, again, almost supplements to existing systems um, that might be useful, especially at a time like this. In response to coronavirus, I suggested, for example, doing the sort of thing that the French government did in the 1830s, which was to purchase the patent and then release it to the public. Um, there was some work by Michael Kramer, who won the Nobel Prize last year um, for economics, back in the 1990s, kind of actually suggesting a really clever way of doing this, using auctions to discover the prices of those patents, discover which of them are actually more valuable than others. Um, and then the government perhaps um, releasing those to speed up technological progress. Because very often, if you have certain patents that are technological bottlenecks, say 3D printing, for example, you know, it's only 3D printing has been around since the 1980s, but it's only flourished as a sector since the mid 2000s, because that's when all the patents started to expire. 
Um, so I'm not suggesting changing the patent system. I think you know for the, that's an extremely difficult thing to do. But you can supplement it by having this policy of patent buyouts, for example. Um, so I suggested you know this could be done for certain bottlenecks when it comes to the sorts of things that we require for coronavirus testing, for pr production of ventilators, and so on. So that's one example. But I think you know in general there's so many lessons to learn from the past. It's it's striking that there isn't something like the Society of Arts prizes you know, in its first hundred years today. You know, why don't we have um, this kind of systematic prize giving organization, not for like these grand X prizes or kind of longitude type prizes where it's some huge thing that, you know, will take millions of dollars or pounds to, to, to develop, but, you know, for smaller things, for incremental changes, which I think are just as valuable very often. Um, and the same with exhibitions that I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the world's fairs are the successors to the Great Exhibition of 1851. But nowadays, they're effectively kind of national branding exercises. They're not actually exhibitions of industry, which is what they originally were. I think they've very much lost sight since about the 1950s and 60s of what their original purpose was. Um, and I, you know, I don't see them as being necessarily engines of free trade in the same very popular kind of mass and very specific sense. Um, so I think there's a whole sorts of um, things that could be that could be done in that regard. My guest today has been Anton Howes. Anton, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.